0: This is Michelle Pintado with open door talk and I am so excited because I am recording with Michael Regan. Michael Regan is a licensed clinical social worker and credential drug and alcohol counselor level two. He is a special friend of mine from New York. I have to tell you a little bit about how I met Mike him and I actually worked at Monticello Central School District. And while I was working there, which really were not my favorite seasons of my life, he was that light for me during that time, we met, we connected, we cultivated that social work relationship and to this day we're still really good friends. He started working at Newburgh Enlarged large city school district, he just got promoted as the newest director for pupil personnel services. Congratulations, Mike.
1: Thank you, Michelle. And I appreciate you having me on your show. As many of you may know, a lot Lot of us clinicians get into the field for a purpose. And we're driven by a passion and a fire that keeps us going and keeps us grounded in our why. Why do we want to help people? Most of us have a purpose. And my purpose has a lot to do, if you think of the quote, be the person that you needed as a child. That is my why. That is what keeps me going. And that's what drives me to be who I am in all things that I do. It's the center of my core. And I'll tell you a little bit about who I was as a child, and how that brought me to where I am today, as a helper and as a servant. Growing up, I lived in a pretty normal household. I grew up in upstate New York. I did have substance abuse in my family. My father was an alcoholic, and he was a great father. I can't say anything bad about him. He really a lot of the good, both the good and the bad, comes from my dad and who I am today. Um, but I was also diagnosed with Tourette syndrome in the third grade at eight years old, and I had a, a very low self-esteem. And when we think about substance abuse and some risk factors associated with those who become dependent on substances, whether that be alcohol or drugs, or any addiction for that matter, a lot of it has to do initially with a low sense of self-worth or a low self-esteem for some people. In other cases, it could be trauma and a variety of other factors. But for me, it was a low self-esteem. Due to my Tourette's, it was a challenge for me as a kid. And when I was about 11 years old, I discovered drugs and alcohol. And at the time, it seemed like the solution to many of my problems. It it was the answer for everything. Suddenly, I didn't feel self-conscious. I fit in with, with a bunch of friends. So I thought, and it quickly spiraled out of control. It didn't take me long before I was severely addicted to drugs, highly at risk and in over my head and without knowing what to do or who to turn to. By the time I was 13, I, I had already been in trouble with the law. I was on juvenile probation. I got caught with drugs in school. I had a, a number of other minor run-ins with the law, disorderly conduct. I developed an addiction to cocaine and opiates. At the time, I was blind to the severity of the situation, as many many of us who struggle with addiction were usually the last ones to find out that we have a problem. A lot of others can see it, but we can't. I had a rude awakening at the age of 17 in my senior senior year of high school in which I was incarcerated. I began to sell drugs to support my habit. Because I was really insecure, I was not a tough kid, but a lot of my friends, they presented themselves as, you know, a tough crowd. And that's always the people that I was attracted to. um, Risk-taking, doing things that I knew I shouldn't have. I wasn't raised that way. But with addiction, it takes you down a dark path a tangled web of lies and me personally I lost sight of who I was I lived to use and I used to live drugs and alcohol so when I got in trouble with the law believe it or not I was involved in a drive-by shooting nobody was physically injured however I was the driver of a car in which my co-defendants fired shots into a house. And thank God the bullets did not hit anyone. But that was a traumatizing, violent act that impacted that family nonetheless. And upon search of my residence, they found the cocaine that I was selling. So I say this with honesty and openness because I'm an open book today and everything I've done in my past, although I know I have negatively impacted others, it drives me to make a positive impact on people today. And nothing is a secret with me. Um, and I believe it's important to share openly and honesty, especially being someone who is a servant to others and a helper. Sometimes our clients, they want to know, how can you identify? And even if I don't disclose all of the, the nitty gritty details of my life, it allows me to empathize with others and know, although our stories, the details may be different, I can identify with shame, guilt, remorse, addiction, and a variety of other complications that I believe many of us struggle with. And there is a stigma to addiction. And and I don't believe there should be because it's not a moral deficiency. It is a disease of the mind, body and spirit. And when I was Entrapped in that disease, I was not who I was meant to be. I was a slave to drugs and alcohol. When I was incarcerated at 17, it was an eye opener for me. I realized my life is unmanageable and I am powerless over drugs and alcohol. And for those of you familiar with the 12 steps of recovery, that is the first step to admit that I was powerless over my addiction and that my life had become unmanageable. It became very clear to me sitting in a jail cell. I remember looking out my cell and watching the TV that was in the room and I couldn't hear it because I was in a cell, but I could see an advertisement for Penn State University, which is where I always thought I would go. It's always where I wanted to go. I didn't wind up going there. I went to a different university, but I was crying because I thought my dreams were over. I was looking at 15 years in prison and I thought I would never see my family or my friends again. Fast forward a little bit. It was a learning experience. I didn't change overnight. I, I knew I had to. I knew I wanted to, but it took time for me to learn the coping skills and strategies that I needed to recover. I spent the next 27 months incarcerated with adults. I was a youth, although my crimes were felonies, tried and convicted as an adult. And I spent the next two years in jail. And that was the turning point for me to really learn where I was heading if I didn't change because I saw plenty of examples while incarcerated. And I actually learned a lot from my fellow inmates who had been further down the road than me and taught me many, many valuable lessons. It's also where I found God and I connected and I turned to Jesus Christ, I became a Christian and a born again Christian. And I realized that my higher power, Jesus came here for sinners like me, not for the righteous. So that alone opened up a whole new chapter in my life. And it allowed me to have a second chance and realize I was forgiven and I could turn it around. I get emotional thinking about it when I get this in depth, because it, it was a miracle. I hit the ground running. I knew I needed to change and I knew actions speak louder than words. And uh, upon the last few months of my incarceration, the judge allowed me to attend community college on a furlough. I would be released from the jail for a certain portion of the day and I would start attending college courses. And initially my passion was was to help others to change their lifestyle and their ways and their thinking and their behaviors and the grip that is so powerful of the obsession to use drugs and alcohol. And I wanted to be a part of that miracle. That's why I continue to do what I do today in a different capacity now, as a leader in a school district, that is always my why, and that always grounds me to be who I am. So I got out and I knew I needed to change everything, people, places, and things, my friends, the places I go, the way that I thought, the way that I presented myself. And I started attending a 12-step program I met a whole new group of people and I worked through the 12 steps of recovery and they also taught me a new way to live. And there were many, many, many people in my life that played a powerful impact. I can't say ever that this is something that I did on my own first and foremost. It is by the grace of God that I have a new life today and that is what grounds me. But there were so many people that God put in my life. Everything from the teacher who helped me finish my high school diploma, who gave me a Bible as a graduation gift and allowed me to really dive deep and learn what God's will was for me in my life. And upon release, I found a sponsor. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that I have extremely supportive parents who bless me with a safe home, a stable home, When I upon my release that I could attend college and, the, and they supported me. And I wanna recognize the fact that that is not the case for everyone. So I do consider myself blessed. And I always like to bring the conversation of equity into what we do. And I understand the concept of privilege. And I do believe that in many ways, I had privileges that allowed me to excel quicker. That And that's not to say that those who are not in a privileged position cannot overcome adversity because there were many things against me as well. And I knew that I had to persist and change my life. And over the 10 years, that's been my journey is being a helper and joining the field of social work, pursuing my clinical social worker license and helping others. I could say that being a part of the school system is such an honor to be able to serve our youth, the next generation. And I see myself in so many of these kids who are struggling to find their way struggling with their self identity, struggling with trauma and and a variety of other factors in this position. Now I'm an advocate for the children by leading the adults and giving the adults what they need who work with these kids to remove barriers to their success and to empower them to be their best selves.
0: Yes your story never really gets old. I've heard it a couple times. And I'm always just blown away from the journey that you've been and where you are now today. And I find it fascinating that you mentioned, I didn't know what gospel was for me at the time because you were messing around with all of these different things, you were self destructing. But I have to mention one thing, you said, I was always attracted to the risk takers. So I believe that you always were who you were, you are now an advocate for those risk takers. And you are still attracted to those risk takers. I think that the purpose of your life was always there. You weren't living the life that you had to be living at the time, but you certainly had to get through those circumstances so that you can be here today. But I think that the essence of who Mike is, you've always been attracted to those that may get into a little trouble because that's what you do now. When, you know, Mike and I were working together at Monticello Central School District, he said, man, I need to plan a trip to the prison for these kids to be exposed to other people that have committed crimes. And this is what Mike does. He just breaks those barriers down so that people are able to see people for who they are, and then they can learn from each other. So I love that you mentioned the risk taker part. I had to write that down. I made a side note because you've always been that guy. This, that's who you are. That is so
1: true, Michelle. And that's you just gave me a little more insight into myself because that I never saw it that way. But you're absolutely right. I'm so attracted and drawn to risk takers and and our at risk youth when I see them and I and I know what's going on in their lives. I just want to be a part of the solution for them and and help them find their way. But yeah, that is definitely a passion of mine.
0: Yeah, that's always been who you are. I think for a moment, maybe you had to become one so you can understand from their perspective, the experiences and the circumstances and challenges that, that they face every day in jail, every day in a home in a broken home in addiction, because who better else than to help these kids that are going through addiction and crimes when you've been through that yourself. And don't get me wrong, there are certainly people out there that definitely have a gift for helping other people. And they haven't really maybe experienced what that other person has experienced I don't want to take away from that. But it takes certain type of people to go through some things just as others so that they're able to then reflect on their own perspective and their own experience and then still be able to help and draw from that because you meet the kids exactly where they're at. I mean, Mike is so phenomenal. I just have to brag a little because there were a couple of kids in the school and there was this one particular kid that he brought into his house and said, you know, this kid is not doing well. He's hitting the streets. He's selling drugs. He's hanging out with the room crowd. Him and his wife took him in and they sheltered him. They gave him opportunities and they helped him out. So Mike is just not the type of person that goes to work and checks in nine to five. This man works seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And whenever there's an opportunity, he's helping those around him, because he wants to be that light and help that next generation. That's who he is. He's a voice for the community. So here's a couple of things. I know that you have worked in two capacities, you have been a licensed clinical social worker, now you're a director. And I also know that you go to meetings on a daily basis. So how do you transition from one road to the other? How do you continue to become confident and be secure in your own skin knowing, okay, yeah, this is my story. I'm an open book. And I still need to step into this role as a director and come into the school and still transition and be okay with that. So how do you do that?
1: That's a good question. And I think it's been a journey to learn how to balance those two worlds and those two identities, because really, they're one identity is what I've learned. And my recovery has to come first before anything else in my life. Otherwise, I lose those things, just like the analogy of when the plane is going, down and the oxygen masks fall off, you need to be able to put on your own oxygen mask before you can help people around you so that you don't become incapacitated. And in that way, I need to recharge my batteries on a daily basis, spiritually, mentally, physically, and remember who I am. While I do have extreme empathy for the people that I work with, and I think you really touched on that well, while my experiences. May be different, I can empathize with the struggle. And I think many of us clinicians can. And I don't want to ignore the fact that we also operate under evidence based practice and we are trained clinicians. So whether you've been through a really hard struggle or not, I believe we are well equipped as licensed clinical social workers to handle a variety of complex issues. Um, But when you have that layer of empathy, I think that really brings an important element into the practice. And when I'm working, I stay humble. While I may be a leader, I understand my job is to serve and my job is to serve others and make sure that they have what they need.
0: Yes, we are here to serve. I have a couple questions. I know you mentioned the privilege part, and I think it's so important to touch base on that because if you guys don't know this, Mike is a white, Caucasian, American male. So we've gotten into this conversation before where he talked about his white privilege and something that he has even brought to light for other white men. His passion is the Black, American, Latino communities, minorities, And so let's talk a little bit about that. I wasn't planning on, but I feel that during this time, I think we should touch base on that really quickly.
1: Absolutely. Part of my old role as a social worker, I coordinated the My Brother's Keeper program. And for those of you who don't know, the goal of My Brother's Keeper is to improve outcomes for boys and young men of color, recognizing that not everyone is entitled and privileged to the same opportunities as others. And there are systemic factors at place in our society at whole, as we know what's going on in society today. Not everybody has those privileges. And I think a lot of my white colleagues who haven't been exposed to diversity, or perhaps they just have a different philosophy on life. Some people struggle with the concept of white privilege, and they feel that, well, I struggle too. And I could certainly say I've had my fair share of struggles. However, I can also say that none of those struggles had anything to do with the Color of my skin. And many of my struggles had a lot to do with decisions that I made that were poor. And for a white male in America, it could be easy and convenient for me to walk around not recognizing and valuing the diversity around me and also the hardships of those who had a different life experience than me. And I would challenge you, if you are a believer in colorblindness or you struggle with the concept of white privilege, to embrace diversity and also try to empathize and think about in what ways have you gone about your life that you never had to think about race whereas others that's a very real situation. I can go anywhere and perhaps get pulled over by police and never have to worry about the fact that my race is going to be a factor in the outcome of that encounter with the police. Something that I'm always mindful of, especially as a social worker, and I work with people of color and children of color, and I see it. It's so apparent to me working in the school system the disparities that exist and the inequities that exist. I see myself as an ally in the fight for equity and racial justice, and part. Of what I do in my job now as an educational leader is I bring that to light. Then we talk about discrimination, which is the action behind those stereotypes and prejudices. And the discrimination, hopefully, when you're mindful of your implicit bias, people don't act on these things, but it is real. I mean, it's embedded into our society and it's our job, it's everyone's job, it's everyone's responsibility. We are all human beings. And at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters. While I may not have caused this injustice, it doesn't mean it's not my responsibility to make sure everyone has a fair shot and the same equitable opportunities growing up.
0: We're definitely gonna have to do another episode on this. Let's talk about how do you stay sober now? What do you personally do in your own life? And then I want to talk about risk takers suffering through the same things, or maybe they're getting ready to go on into that path.
1: For those currently in the midst of addiction or contemplating whether or not they are ready to change, first and foremost, it's going to take some real honesty on the part of yourself to look in and accept the fact that you have a problem. Don't worry about the stigma because I recognize there's a stigma to addiction without help Just know this is nothing that you could ever do on your own. It's nothing I could have ever done on my own. I needed help. I needed a program of recovery that kept me on the right path. And here's the thing. I still need a program of recovery. Despite all the successes and great things happening in my life, it would be real easy for me to pretend like everything's back to normal. And that isn't the case. At the end of the day, on the inside, I am an addict. Thankfully, by the grace of God, I'm a recovering addict, but that is because I recognize that although I have a length of time in recovery, I need to continue to to work on myself and invest in myself. And the first step in anyone's struggle with addiction is to accept the fact that you have a problem. And it may not be an easy thing to accept. It's actually probably the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life was to recover from this disease of addiction. Now, I have found acceptance for who I am. And I'm grateful to be a recovering addict because all the things that I've gone through and all the negative struggles that I've experienced make me who I am today. And I'm happy with who I am today. I would also say that you need to keep an open mind and realize that addiction can be very deceiving. In many ways, it speaks to us in our own voice. And we will convince ourselves into the most horrendous of situations. And people wonder, how do you wind up being a drug addict? Nobody ever wants this. But once you're in it, your judgment is clouded. I mean, and that's neuroscience, but it's also common sense. You're putting drugs and alcohol into your brain, your prefrontal cortex isn't operating properly, and you're no longer thinking like a rational person. Drugs and alcohol become the priority, and you're willing to sacrifice anything. So keep an open mind when people reach out and they are ready to help and make sure you reach out yourself. The last thing is willingness the willingness to do whatever it takes to change. And it's not a comfortable journey. It's not a, an easy one. It's like I said, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, harder than any college or school or, or job that I've ever had. And it really does take a relentless sense of willingness to change everything. And that happens one day at a time. That's what I just shared could be very overwhelming for someone in the grips of addiction. But I want you to know it, it starts with one step and that's to ask for help. And once you do that and you continue down that journey one day at a time, that honesty, open mindedness and willingness. That's what it takes.
0: So besides going to the meetings, is there anything else that you do personally that helps you I want
1: to emphasize the importance of the 12 step meetings in my life, because I alone cannot do any of this. And I need to be reminded of who I am, and what I need to do to recover, I need to be surrounded by others who share the same experiences me in life. A lot of times when people give up a lifestyle of addiction, you're left with a huge void. What do I do? All that time I spend seeking and using and finding ways and means to get more, um, what do I do with that now? And I have to change all, all my people, places, and things, but what if all the people, places, and things that were in your life, that's all you knew. And now what? So a 12-step program allowed me the opportunity to identify with others, have that support, build a new network of friends and support and really a family. It's become a family for me. Um, in addition, to my 12-step program, I continue to remember that it was God who brought me into this wonderful life that I'm in today. And I try to stay connected to God, my higher power, and pray is, if anything, that's what really helps me to continue On the right path is to stay connected with God. Lastly, I would say that I continue to keep an open mind and remain teachable. And I try to remember that I have many character defects of my own. Although I'm a helper, it doesn't mean that I'm immune to having things I need to work on as a person. So I don't ever pretend like I'm cured or that I'm above anyone else or any situation because I know it could be so easy to fall back. And I just stay vigilant and stay connected to God.
0: I never felt that you've put yourself above anyone and even more so now as you continue to progress in your career journey and now you're a director, I still feel that you're the same Mike that I met four years ago and I really feel that that's something that you've been consistent with. And it's something that I can trust as a friend. So I appreciate that you took the time to join me on my podcast. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It has been amazing speaking to you in most phenomenal ways. If people are in New York, and they are struggling with addiction right now, maybe they want to connect with you, how can they connect with you? And what is some information that you can give out
1: personally, if you are contemplating and you're on the fence of getting help and you're struggling with addiction, send me an email. I'd be happy to share with you some options in getting help for yourself so you can start a great life and be the person you were meant to be. My email is michael.regan at AOL.com, spelled M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot R-E-G-A-N at AOL.com. I'd be happy to speak with you and help you help yourself.
0: There you go. I am a credential drug and alcohol counselor level two. If you are looking for any help in that, area and I can help you in any way you guys know my social handles open door talk and you can contact me directly this is Michelle Pintado with open door talk